I appreciate that prayer, Brad. Grateful because I find the, uh, you know, uh, I find the combination of these verses today to be particularly difficult. Now, I say that as the one who decided where we were going to start and where we were going to stop in this chapter. But it was the combination of it that when I was reading that Mark would put two things right next to each other that I found so unique and so gripping that I thought, I think this just needs to be a part of what we look at today. What Zoe read for us from Isaiah 40 were words that if you heard them and you remembered, they reference someone who was going to come. Isaiah is speaking a long time ago in the past and says, I want to speak comfort to my people. That's what God says, verse 1. I want to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and I want to cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquities pardoned, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I want good news for my people, and I want it to come. How's it going to come? The next verse says, well, we're going to prepare the way of the Lord, and we're going to make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, we heard John the Baptist, the echoes of that, right? No, because we know that he came as the one who was going to prepare the way so that it would be like valleys are lifted up and mountains are dropped down so that everything that would seem difficult to get across just got flattened and the way is ready for Jesus to arrive. The reason Zoe read that is that what we heard in the New Testament from verses 7 through 13 sounded like great news, right? The context of this passage is this sense that Jesus from verses or from chapters like one through five was calling disciples. He was kind of impressing them a little bit. He was getting some crowds. He was getting some actual followers. He was naming those who would be among his 12. And he, he has his, his posse, his team's ready. From six on, it's like he's no longer calling them, but he's sending them. And in chapter 6, verse 7, listen to the way that he equips them to go. Here's just, again, just think of this as the context. He called the 12 and began to send them out partnered, right? So they're not going out alone, but they're not going out as a whole group. He's taking his, his group of 12 and sending them, if you're doing the math right, in six groups of two. And they're going out to do something. So he's sending them partnered. He's also sending them powerful. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. If you were watching The Chosen along with us, you remember there was a moment when Jesus had been doing a lot. And he's talking uh, at night with uh, a couple of his followers. And he says, well, you'll have the authority to do the kind of things you've seen me do. And I love the moment that they captured on the one disciple's face. He's like, whoa, whoa, say that again? We'll get to do what you're doing? And it had to be a similar moment for these guys to realize God is sending them out and saying, Lord, I want to, give, I want to extend my authority into their life. Kind of similar to this woman who just touches Jesus' robe and all of a sudden healing power goes from him into her and she's altered. The disciples are now altered by God giving power to them through Jesus and he's giving them this. So there's this partnered mission, this powerful mission. And then verse eight, this like entirely poor mission. He charges them to take nothing for the journey except for a walking staff. You can, you can have one of those because you got to get there. But no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, no change of clothes, just the shoes on your feet, the clothes on your back. You go and you're going to be dependent 
on what's going to happen when you get there. Now, a couple other, uh, you know, sort of parallel gospels hit on this and talk about kind of a mission strategy of finding a person of peace in a village. And, and Mark doesn't deal with any of that. Mark instead, I think, wants to highlight the fact that Jesus is telling them to go out utterly dependent, powerful to be sure, partnered up to be sure, but utterly dependent on the people that they're going to minister to when they get there. Listen to what happens in verses 10 and 11. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there, which seems incredibly obvious. That's what I do in every house I ever enter. So I don't think Jesus is making an obvious point, right? When you come to church, I want you to stay there until you leave. Thanks for that. This isn't just a a physical description of what's going to happen. He's essentially saying, first place you get a welcome, that's your base. Stay there until you don't leave the house, but you leave that whole region. When you come into an area, you enter a house, stay there. And if anybody doesn't receive you, then they'll, and they won't listen to you. When you leave, do the Old Testament prophetic thing of saying, I am not taking your unbelieving dirt with me to the next town. So here, you can have everything that's yours. I want all of this filth to stay with you because I'm going somewhere else now. So he's, he's kind of painting the reception they're going to get in two very different ways. I want you to go to be dependent on the reception, but understand you'll get, at times, a good reception from people that you'll share the gospel with, and at times you'll get a really hostile reception. And I, I want you to be dependent on that good reception in some ways, and I want you to not be heartbroken by the fact that some people will reject you. Because just remember, do that dust-shaking thing. That's what all my prophets of, of the past have ever done. Okay. So verse 12, they get their instructions. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So what we have in this is a prescription for how all missionaries ought to go out forever, right? Not really. This is one of the difficult things about reading the Gospels, guys. Sometimes we hear stuff. And we always know everything we read is, and theologians and and commentators have talked about this some way. We always read what's descriptive, right? We read a description of what happened. The question is, how do we know when that description is a prescription for what we ought to do? Now, in this case, we don't take this prescriptively. Why? Because Jesus contradicts this in other descriptive moments when he sends them out towards the end of his time with his, his folks, he's going to send them out and say, this time when you go out, I'm, you're going to need a couple swords. And they're like, well, we got a couple swords. He's like, yeah, that'll, that'll be enough. But I want you to go out, take some provisions. Don't be as dependent. Your reception's not going to be good. In fact, you may even have to defend yourselves. So how do we know when to take this as a prescription and when to take that as a prescription? We only know how to interpret those things when we get instructions from other places on how to do it and when to do it. We know that we as kingdom, as citizens of a kingdom of light are never to be afraid of this, the, the works of the kingdom of darkness. We, we know that's always supposed to be true. Do we know that we have all the same mandate and mission, the same sense that you never go out on your own, always go two by two? There might be wisdom in this. We don't know exactly, though, how much to take of this as a hard and fast prescription for everything we ever do. We just know this in reading Mark. This is what Jesus called them to do. 
And rather than worrying too much about what we're supposed to imitate entirely going forward, although there is one thing, just as a brief caveat, that I feel like, as we were talking as elders yesterday, um, we do know one thing we've been called to do. Listen to James 5. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It, you've heard Jesus do this, this work of healing somebody and forgiving somebody simultaneously. This Somebody comes believing that Jesus is impressive and he says, not only is your faith healing you, it is also an evidence of the fact that you are now forgiven by God. The guy gets dropped down through the roof. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. He's like, yeah, but my legs are broken. Yeah, it's just, there's people watching and I I want them to understand this. But more than that, you see that the linking? James does the same thing. James is linking this sense that some folks are in a spot in your churches where their physical ailments need to be healed. And somehow in that process, that prayer of reaching out and of doing this in a community of elders who have faith to pray for you also is tied to your ongoing salvation. Now, theologically, how exactly does that work? Does that undermine our whole doctrine of justification? No, it it doesn't. It does tell us this though. Church, do this. And as elders, we were saying, you know what? We're not as much doing this. We're doing this at times when we go out. And we visit folks. And I just, I want to commend Brad and Sue as examples of this. I feel like when they have been aware, and okay, yes, maybe a little bit. There's, there's a sense that uh, weakness might strike their group a little bit more than others. But, uh, but they have been faithful to go. And I've been grateful when I can come along with Brad and, and pray for someone. We're just not doing it here. And we realize that's a real mistake on our part. And so this might feel a little structured, But we're going to take the first Sunday of every month going forward, and we're going to have a time at the end of the service where we pray for folks who want to be prayed for and want to be healed. That's something we know we ought to do because the description in Mark is also told to be something that prescriptively we're to imitate, and we know it's something we're supposed to do as a collective body, and we haven't been doing it, and we want to say, guys, we're sorry. Forgive us for not leading this way. We repent, and we want to start, and we're starting today, and we're going to do the same thing the first month, or the first week of every month. Now, I realize that's going to land on July 4th, but so be it. Come to church. We'll pray for people who are sick. It's going to land on Labor Day weekend. So be it. Go camping if you want. Stay here if you want. I don't know, but that's what we're doing on those Sundays, so be with us. We want to pray for folks after church. So if, if, if there's a certain sense that you're hearing this in Mark and you're like, ah, why don't we do this here? I can say, I don't know why we haven't done this here, but we're gonna. So there we are moving on. That's an element of what we ought to do. But here's the other thing that I hear whenever I hear these instructions. What? These guys, these 12, Mark, Jesus, have you not been paying attention to the first five chapters? Because these guys are woefully unprepared. I I, I didn't have this. I read this this morning and I didn't put it into a slide. But listen to the way this guy describes the the disciples. I was just reading this fresh. I was like, oh, this is so good. I just got to repeat this guy for you. He, He says, despite their limitations, they were to put into practice by telling others. I love that simple phrase. Despite their limitations, 
They were to put into practice what they'd heard by telling others. Now he goes on and describes, he says, it is difficult to exaggerate the risk Jesus took in sending his disciples out to teach and heal. The impression of them created by Mark so far falls well short of complimentary. They do not understand his teaching, chapter 4, verse 10. They do not trust his will or power to protect them, chapter 4, verse 28. They are not sensitive to his extraordinary perception, chapter 5, verse 31. Yet they are sent out, albeit in pairs, to teach, heal, and exercise. The implication of this act of Jesus, as of Mark's teaching as a whole so far, is that, and hear this into one of his parables, No amount of hearing, teaching, or observing miracles, or even being with Jesus, is enough. They must risk themselves in dependence on the gospel and the power that accompanies it. There is, of course, enormous satisfaction and challenge in hearing the word and in seeing the mighty deed. But the real test... And the true moment of growth arrives when I myself am able to speak a word of witness or do some gospel deed in which my reputation, my being, depends on there being a power there to sustain me. Ah, I was just like, why did I miss this and not put this into a... We'll save this and I'll send it out in the email. Something along those lines. Right, Zoe? Yeah, okay, very good. Do you hear that sense, though? I mean, because if you're reading this the way I am, you're thinking... They graduated? They're not even out of kindergarten. What are you doing? You can't commission them. You can't send them. You can't give them this power. They are unwieldy. They are unpredictable. They are unbelieving. And so are we, right? What this does is it eliminates any excuse that you've had this last week, this last month, the whatever in your life, not to share the gospel, not to obey God in public. Not to tell somebody else something by the way you live and by the way you speak that Jesus has worked in your life and he can work in their life. You don't need more than you have to take the step. We are people who are prone to demanding more of God before he can ask anything of us. (laughs) This passage just turns that all on its head. Well, God, what if... What if we as the elders aren't ready ready to pray for people? Oh my goodness, what more do you need to be ready? I'm, not the, I'm the one doing it. You're just coming to ask. That's all I'm asking you to do. Okay, you're right. We haven't? Let's go. Now, there's the call. We haven't even looked at the text mainly yet. That's the call. And if you were Mark and you wanted to put something forward next, because we hear they did it, but we just don't hear any details, right? 12 and 13. Can you put that back up again, Isaac? 12 and 13. Do you hear any details, any specifics, any names, any anything? No, nothing. Just they went, they did it, it happened. Good. Now, if you've ever listened to like a political speech or something like that, you know that somebody makes grand statements and then they want to point to an example, right? They want to tell you, oh, and we have this person with us today. Please stand up. Everybody clap for this person. I want to tell you how their story relates to the, you know, the sort of the policy I'm proposing right now. And this policy of go, don't wait, go, don't wait, speak, don't be silent. That policy needs an example. And who do we get? 
we get John the Baptist. That's what perplexed me as I was reading Mark and trying to figure out what do we link together in sermons. Mark puts them right next to each other. He says, this is what you do, and this is what it's like. And to me, this is where the recruitment video seems like it just falls flat. If I'm the editor of this and I'm Jesus' PR man, I'm thinking, um, really? And Mark's like, yeah, just wait till you get to the end of the gospel. (laughs) You want to talk about something that doesn't seem like it works well. But Mark dives right into the story and he does it by talking about the past, revisiting the present, or sorry, talking about the present, revisiting the past, and then helping us think about the future. So let's just do that. Let's look at the present of what exactly happens. All this activity, all the 12 go out. There are groups of two, the six of them, and they come back and they got good news. Well, verse 14, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What do you hear from verses 14 through 18? Detail, detail, detail. Story, backstory, name, implication, hero, villain, problem. You get details that we were absolutely missing. Didn't you want these details from 7 through 13? Jesus takes an ill-equipped, unprepared group, gives them power, tells them, go out poor. You're going to either meet this kind of person or that kind of person. Shake your dust off here. Stay there. And I'm not going to tell you anything else about what happened except for they did it and they came back and they were really happy. Now let me give you details. Herod heard what was going on, and he was like, whoa, John's back. Now, by context, Mark 1, verses 9 through 11, we had read this about John the Baptist. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you, I'm well pleased. Great news about John, right? Then we heard this about John right after that. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is Jesus. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, and when we went over this, I told you one of the weird things that Mark does is he makes these bookends about John. John's already served his purpose. Why do we need to hear about him anymore? We don't, right? John baptized Jesus. The way is prepared. The valleys are, are, are up. The mountains are down. Jesus has a flat road to go ahead and the baptism's done. John can get out of the way. But now Mark uses him and says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news. So he talks about something that has already happened that they already knew about. And I told you that was one bookend. This text today is the other one. See, Jesus has started this process in chapters 1 through 5 of talking about what does it mean to call people to him. He's about to begin talking about what does it mean to send them out into mission, and John's the bookend around the callings. 
John is the one that we need to focus on as the details. Because Jesus will say, if anyone comes after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. He has said, whoever saves his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. He said, if a seed falls into the ground, and well, you know what happens to a seed, right? It's going to die. So we get these things, but it's like in the story of John, we find out, This is your recruitment video. This is the one I want you to point to and understand. It could be like this. Are you still in? It might cost what it costs, John. Are you still in? Because Herod is hearing about everything going on, and Jesus is reminding Herod of John the Baptist. That's what's happening here in the present. Now let's just go back. And listen with Mark as he talks about John. What happened in the past? Herodias, verse 19, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. See the dilemma that, that took place in the past? Herod's been speaking out, or sorry, John has been speaking out about what Herod did by marrying his brother's wife. And Herodias doesn't like it. And I'm sure Herod didn't either, but something about John so intrigued him. He was really struggling by what he would heard. So he heard him, he was perplexed, and something about hearing him gladdened him. But, verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Some dance. I mean, guys, sex dominates the landscape of this story, doesn't it? Herod wants who who he wants and how he feels dominates things, not what he ought to do. There's the problem. John the Baptist speaks out against it. John the Baptist gets imprisoned. Herodias has uh, a grudge against him. She's bitter about the way this went down. And now Herod, who is reluctant to hurt John, is overwhelmed in a way that I think should really unsettle us. He's overwhelmed by his stepdaughter's dancing. To the point that he says, makes a statement, and then backs it up with a vow. Half of what I have is yours, if only you would ask. This is how much I'm moved sexually by the dancing of my stepdaughter. Now, if we just pause for a second, can you lay our current dilemma and the current context of our culture into this scenario? Live in a world that tells God you have no business in my bedroom or wherever I want to have sex. You have no business telling me that how I feel should be governed by what you say. 
because what I feel matters more than what you have said. That's broadly the world that we live in. Specifically, you can dive into and realize that the more you follow that, follow that pattern, it has led our world to make commitments that are absolutely destructive. We're not doing things that are that far off from what we're reading in this story. When you say there are no bounds, you cannot stop that ball from rolling down the hill. And it will pick up more and more muck as it goes. And this ball is pretty mucky right now in this story. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately. Ah, that word again. Mark says it's going to happen. Remember, it's not just chronology. It's, it's the determined nature of what Mark's communicating. His death sentence signed, isn't it? Immediately with, the, with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Do you know the number of people in this world who live where Herod is living right now. Buying into a culture, having made commitments in it, and being driven, uh, just driven by it, but knowing something's wrong. Herod is, is enslaved. He's just following down a path of his own lusts, but he knows inside something's wrong. How he just longs to be free in some ways that is perplexing to him and even gladdening when he listens to the guy telling him, you're doing this the wrong way. Something about Herod is happy. Something about Herod is perplexingly happy and he doesn't get it to the point that when he realizes what he has to do, he is grieved and not just a little twinge. He is exceedingly Sorry, he is mourning, but he's still committed. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Mark is not trying. You can understand why we dismissed the kids a little bit early today. One, we wanted you know Jim to be able to speak freely about his ministry. But I was also glad that this was not the week that we had uh, kids in the service, that this wasn't you know, coinciding with the fifth Sunday of the week. But at some point, you have to be aware this is the world your kids are walking into. And at one point, this reality was just so overwhelming, me and Christine, that we're raising kids who are walking into a world who doesn't know the difference between light and dark anymore. And it's just said, the light is so offensive, it hurts my eyes. I don't, oh, I can't feel this way. You're oppressing me by feeling this way. Oh, this is just so hard. And oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And Christine, just for a little while, she's put on her wall. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. That was just a steadying 
verse for her and for me to realize that's right. We're, we're citizens of a kingdom of light. And yeah, light does some stuff. And we've all had moments when our deeds have been brought into the light and we've just said, what in the world is going to happen at this moment? Herod had his moment here. He had his moment when John called him out. He had his moment every time he heard John. He had his moment as well whenever what he wanted to do and what he had committed to do were put forward. Herod had the option. He could have come out, taken off the ring, laid it down, said, guys, I renounce the power that I have because I just realized I made a commitment I can't have. I'm putting my deputy in place or whatever it would be. But every opportunity he had, he walked away from. And so John the Baptist is headless. Herod killed John the Baptist as a grudge. Be blessed and go. And honestly, guys, that's kind of the way we're going to end. I don't have more for you, except for this. I want you to see the world you're walking into, the world our kids are walking into, the world you will enter this week, today. It may be the world in which you've been participating in some ways. The world has to choose between two loyalties, guys. And Jesus' teaching style is binary, to use a trendy word. Jesus' teaching style is to say you have to choose. I've tried to make these calls at times to our church. Guys, you can't live for money. You can't live after the the beat of this world and also serve God. And I'm not just trying to say that because we're trying to boost church programs. I'm trying to say that because Jesus said, if you love money, you don't love me. If you serve money, you don't serve me. That's his style. He puts it forward. Two loyalties, you pick. I'm just trying to show you that one leads to death, this one leads to life. Just in the words of like Moses from centuries before. This is the way God tells us that we have options. We follow him or we don't. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. That tension exists, and I want you to understand the potential that exists. Go back to 7 through 13. Who do you think the disciples met other than many Herods? people who were enslaved to a way of thinking that were deluded by that way of thinking, maybe even perpetuating it. And yet when they heard the disciples come, they said something about this is perplexing and gladdening at the same time. I I don't get it, but I want to, I want to hear more. And yet they would go out and they would meet Herodias's too. They would meet Herodias' daughter, too. They would meet the nobles that are in this story, too. Who is it the disciples are going to go out and meet? The same people you and I are going to go out and meet. And if you don't believe that, just put yourself back in the story before you heard about Jesus. What was your life like? It was miserable. Deluded and yet miserable on a path that somehow was going to please, but never satisfied. All the Old Testament metaphors make sense. You're you're drinking, but it's just not working. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, you're you're going after something that just isn't going to work for you, and you get it. 
And you're hearing about life and you're hearing about satisfaction. You're hearing about a God whose love is just not earnable by you, but is given to you freely. And it is so perplexing and it awakens something in your heart. One option, one loyalty. And yet we read that the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And so he went out and killed John. These are the two parts of the story Mark's putting forward. A Herod who hears him gladly and a Herod who kills him sadly. And I'll tell you my temptation in the middle of it. It's to be so overwhelmed sometime with the second reality and even some of the darkness of the first reality that I just say, boy, I guess my words just have no power. I guess my call just has nothing behind it. And I, I, you know, I, I mean, I look and I've got nothing in my money bags. I've got no change of clothes. I've really got nothing that could impress or wow people. And so maybe I should just stay quiet. And maybe you feel kind of that same way. And that's not the call that Jesus is going to continue to give to his disciples moving forward in the book of Mark. And if we, if we hear this and we don't pause over this, I feel like the rest of this book is going to be entertainment and not a call. And it's to be a call. There's something that will be continually descriptive, but we'll miss the prescriptive invitation that comes along with this. And it'll cost you your life. And if you're not worthy to do that, if you're not, sorry, if you're not willing to do that, you're not worthy to be a disciple. Those are Jesus' words to us. If we're going to base the future of our church on what's going to be popular, if we're going to base the direction of our families and our mission together on what's just going to sort of impress people, then we're not worthy to follow him. And we should plead that God doesn't let anybody follow us. But if we read the account of John and we say, that's the boldness and the courage and the clarity I want to bring, then okay. Then if there's three people following us, if there's 300 people, if there's 3,000 people following us, let's live a life worthy of being followed. Let's speak in a way that's worthy of being listened to. Let's set an example that actually accomplishes something in the kingdom of God as opposed to that, which just, no matter your political party, no matter whatever, we can go outside of this and try to preserve our lives through popularity, or we can try to be willing to do what we're called by Paul and by the Spirit to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which is to say, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. That's us? Yeah, that's you. Well, I'm not good at that. Paul gets it. Who's sufficient for these things? It wasn't the disciples when they were first called, and it ain't us today when we're being called. We're not sufficient for these things, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, here's what we do. Here, here Paul. As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's it. Don't talk about you. You're boring. Don't come in the merits of your reputation. That's so fragile. 
But if you believe you've been commissioned by God, and if you believe you are living in the sight of God, then speak in Christ. Talk about your failures and your weaknesses with Christ. Talk about your successes and the ways that God has prospered you in Christ. Speak words that are not promoting you, but that are promoting Christ. And as such, you will find that at times you got to kick the dust off of your feet because you don't want to carry that unbelief with you to the next town and to the next conversation. But you'll find some so perplexed. You'll find some so overwhelmed. And you'll be able to remember, I remember when I felt like you. I remember it. I remember the moment that I heard the gospel and it just made sense. I didn't have to be a good boy or a good girl, but God loves the good and the bad. Whoa! I remember when I was at college and I was living completely different and somebody was just living so outside of the parameters and the rules and it just didn't make any sense to them. And a conversation and wow, I was perplexed and gladdened and I wanted to hear more. You'll meet those folks. And would you abandon them so that you just stay popular and trendy and accepted? Would you protect your profession? Would you protect your reputation to the extent that those who could be gladdened by words spoken by those commissioned by God in the sight of God speaking in Christ just speak? This isn't the only text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 through 13. This is Paul talking about the way he speaks to the Thessalonians. He says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God's witness nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but about our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. If you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And we also thank God constantly for this then. When you were successful, what was it? Because of me? No. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of Paul and, and others, of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is coming in chapter 6. we still got like 10 chapters to go. And if you know the gospel story, you know this isn't the first death that's going to be transformative in the whole presentation of the gospel. And I want to put it bluntly and clearly without kind of overstating it, but I don't think this is an overstatement. If you protect your life now, you tell Jesus that he wasted his. You get that? If you are willing to hold on to your life and your reputation now at all costs, then you're telling Jesus that his mission was an absolute failure. But he's, he, because he came not to win praises from people, but to die for them. 
And this will change, just like we heard in Paul. You hear he's not being just nasty and combative for the sake of it. He's talking to people he's loving and desirous of and affectionate towards and gentle with. And so Paul, again, in Philippians 2, looks at us and says, all right, those of you saved by the death of Jesus, those of you who know the story of a God who came to earth for you and emptied up all of his rights and privileges and and just wanted to make known to you the great love of God? If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then I want you to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So have this mind in yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you know, you know that's not the end. It says 2, 1 to 11. Because this isn't the end of John's story either. He's not going to show up again. His head's gone. He's dead. But he is witnessing the events of earth today. He, in the presence of God, is one of the martyrs we read about in in Revelation, crying out on one sense in a holy way, how long, O Lord, are you going to put up with this? How long, O Lord, can you actually suffer the disrespect of humanity? Only to once again turn back and worship the long-suffering God who still is extending to people a chance to repent still giving people an opportunity to join in this and to understand the glory of the death of Jesus and the death of his saints because Philippians 2, 1 to 11 has a therefore. Because Jesus did this, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore God has highly exalted him. In other words, this doesn't end at death and it won't end at yours. Do you hear the promise of this passage as well for all who would follow in the way of Jesus? Have you been encouraged by Christ? Have you been comforted by his love? Then I want you to imitate the way he lived. Why would I do that? Why would I imitate someone who just walked a path that led to his defeat? Because it didn't lead to his ultimate defeat. And for those who would walk this way with Jesus in suffering, we will follow with him in glory because seeds that are planted in the earth don't just die. They die and they bear fruit. That's what Jesus' death did. And in one sense, it's what John's death did. So that we can say, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow including Herod's and Herodias's and Herodias's daughter. And there will be a great cloud of witnesses that watches that moment as well. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. We ask the Father that he would bless the preaching of his word. And this is a tough one to, to embrace. I get it. But I think it's deliberate, and I hope you can see why I wanted us to look at it right with 7 through 13, this sense that the call to a discipleship that's costly has a recruitment video and a, a, and a case study of a guy who paid the greatest cost. Because at this point in the story, this is what Mark wants us to understand so that we don't misunderstand what's coming forward. And in some ways, God's Spirit providentially has put you here so that you reading this book here 2,000 years later are in the exact same spot so that you don't misunderstand what's coming as well. Because there's life and there's glory and there's reward, but not yet. There are foretastes, but greater glory coming through a path that's going to look much like John's and much like Jesus's. So let me pray to that end so that God empowers us for that task. Father, we, we don't want this. <laughs> it's, it's easy to sort of rah-rah a point. It's easy to preach a point. It's so hard to live. And we don't want to walk out of here impoverished, Lord. Like the disciples, though, we don't want to take any of our skill, any of our money. We want to be dependent on the power and the people you provide. And so, Lord, I pray, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the people who would be perplexed and gladdened by the gospel. And Lord, this make us bold. Make us bold like John, that we could call things out and invite people to the same grace that, that carried us when we were called out as well. Father, I pray for this power for this mission. I pray it would happen, Lord, as, as the teens are talking, the young adults are talking after church. Lord, I pray that it would happen as we're preparing for the week that you have ahead of us, that as parents and, and uh, just families are gathered together, Lord, that you would empower their conversations this way, that you would work in those who have received invitations for VBS so that VBS would take this path and our future would take this path. But Lord, we will need you desperately as we empty ourselves of everything else we've got so that we can follow you. I pray, Lord, by your spirit that we'd have this kind of faith and this kind of courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.